Brothers and sisters, I was truly hoping to see you eye to eye this week and preach to your faces and to your souls and to have a communion with you in person instead of I have to uh, look into one eye of a camera and that way to communicate the Word of God. But we are one in spirit, and I believe that there is no boundaries for the Word of God, and through this we could be united as well. I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. We'll look at three verses and make few points and few observations from that. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, right in the middle of the section, Paul is writing to believers to encourage them to stay strong in their faith in Christ, to walk uh, firmly in the Lord. Have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And he continues that. And as you read, you will see, read with me, and you try to um, focus on the words. And I understand it's just in the middle of the passage, but my point tonight, today, is to communicate that you have a power that is available to you for your Christian life, and that power comes from your identity in Christ. And therefore, I, I, I named the sermon, The Power of Your Identity in Christ. Please read with me verses 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive you together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consistent of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. Where can I find power to resist my flesh? Everybody's dealing with flesh. And I believe that Paul's aim of all this section to bring to exaltation Christ and his supremacy so that he is supreme in your life and so that you will be able to stand firm against the fleshly indulgences. The reason why I say that because Paul ends verse chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 23. He ends the section before he goes to the imperatives and what we should, should do. He wants us to be confined to Christ where we find the power. And he warns us in verse 23, this is why he's writing it. He says, therefore, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against what? Against fleshly indulgences. Are you dealing with your fleshly indulgences? Are you dealing with your old nature? Are you dealing with your sins of your discouragement, of, your, of the accusations? Are you dealing with those? Well, there is something that you would never be able to conquer flesh with flesh. And the only way how you conquer them, it is in Christ. So Paul warns us in verse 8 
This is why he begins the section. He, he said, I don't want you to be taken captive by anyone, any philosophy, any false teaching, any fleshly man who could come and tell you, this is how you win the battle. This is how you grow in your spiritual walk. This is how you become more sanctified. And here's what you need to do apart from Christ. And Paul says, no, no, no. The problem that false teachers suggested, believers, that you are not complete in Christ and you need to come into the progression of to become complete. And that's why Paul, in verses 9, he says, since he is full of deity, verse 10, in him you have been made complete. Paul's taught here, instead of providing a series of ethical imperatives, you have to look at Christ and embrace Christ and consider yourself attached to Christ and everything that available to Christ from God is available to you. You are accomplished believer in Christ. So Paul is talking about sufficiency of Christ so that we could have powerful life here on earth, Christian life. That's why Paul says, see that nobody takes you captive. You don't want to be enslaved, being free, being duped into the idea that you are not. You don't want to be enslaved, being free from guilt, that you are guilty. And that's what Paul is aiming. Now, where do we find this power? Here's the statement that I want you to remember. This is the main point of this passage, of the whole passage, that the power for your Christian life comes exclusively from your identity in Christ. The power of your Christian life comes exclusively from your identity in Christ. We are in him. This is the most powerful thought for Christian mind. This is the for powerful thought for Christian life and godliness. And we are talking here about the doctrine, perhaps the most central doctrine of the New Testament, our union with Christ, our union with Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you view yourself? How do you view yourself? Now, you could view yourself for, through many spectacles. In relational aspect, horizontal aspect, you can see yourself as a husband, wife, child, or daughter. And that is great. Or in your career life, you could see yourself as a boss, CEO, or just a, or just a worker. But if someone asks you, well, in relation to God, who are you? And you might say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And I want to show you this morning that how God views you. How God identifies you. It is far important for us to think about ourselves, how God sees us. And here's where we find power for life. And that, for that, we need to study the life of Christ and what he has done for us so that we could see ourselves in the right light of God. This union with Christ, it's so precious to my heart that for the last couple of years I've been soaking in into this and I don't claim that I understand it in full capacity. It is somewhat mystery, but this is what Bible tells us that I am united with Christ. You as a believer united with Christ. Now this text talks to us about your old identity. 
the way how you could identify yourself going back to who you were or your new identity in Christ. And two simple points, your old identity is that you are a dead man. That was your old identity. You are guilty as charged old man who is dead in sin. You are son of Adam. And the second point in verses 13 up to 14 is that you have new identity alive in Christ. Alive in Christ. Now, let's just talk about briefly of how God viewed you before you met Christ, before you were in Christ. And it basically described in two aspects. First of all, you were dead in your transgressions and you were dead in your uncircumcision of your flesh. Now you have been dead, whether you thought about yourself, you're alive or not, or whether you thought yourself have relationship with God or not, maybe you've been God-fearer, or maybe you try very hard to please God. But the fact is that God looked at you as you're a dead man. You had no life, and you had zero relationship with God. And all you could produce is that the sin, the transgressions again and again and again. Now, this deadness to God you know, illustrated by many commentators, but I, I like to think uh, in this realm, when you have been dead to God, you had zero relationship with God, zero. I don't know if you watched the TV show Shark Tank. There's a, a very interesting character hosting that, Kevin O'Leary. He's a Canadian businessman. And whenever he proposes some deal to the entrepreneur, they bring to some idea, and he said, this is my deal to you. And they would reject him. Often, immediately, he said, you're dead to me. You're, you're dead to me. That, that's it. Don't talk to me. I don't hear you. I have no relations with you. You're dead. Consider yourself as a corpse in this room. And in that sense, for God, every unbeliever is dead. There is no relationship. There's nothing. Now, you have not been in God in any sense, but you were in sins. This is our old nature. We were in sins. It says in trespasses. We were in something. We always belonged to something. And the idea is that we actively transgress, trespasses the territory of God's law. We could not stop. The reason why we could not stop, because our identity was rooted in Adam. We were in Adam. We were part of Adam. We were part of old nature. And this old nature is apparent here in verse 13. Look with me. It says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What is he talking about uncircumcision of your flesh? Well, the circumcision of the flesh was the sign. I mean, that was like, like you signed the contract with cutting foreskin of your flesh. Abraham signed this contract by cutting the foreskin, and by this, he was saying basically this, simple. I'm, di- I'm dying for my own self, and I'm following, and I'm just associating myself with you. This is my old life, selfish, fleshly. Now, the sign that I'm following you, and I'm part of you now, God, I'm cutting off my skin. Now, in verse 11, God said that we had the circumcision. That means that we have died for self. Without hands, Christ circumcised us, meaning that he took away the power of old nature from us. Whenever you see the circumcision, it's dealing with your Adamic nature. 
you have been ingrained and infused with Adam. And now God takes away the power of this flesh in nature. And, and he said, no longer you should treat yourself as an old self. Don't consider yourself as an old self. You were part of Adam's race, but now you're not. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, he makes this statement, which kind of clarifies the things of this Adamic nature in our, in our, uh, our old nature. It says, for us in Adam all die. But notice this. He says, in Adam. In Adam. You were in Adam. And now he said, even so in Christ shall be made alive. So an old you had no hopes. You were completely dead. Dead to God. Could not produce anything by sin. Why? Because you were part of Adamic nature. And you were there. With Adam when he was sinned. And therefore, when you've been baptized the first time, it was the sign that you've been baptized into something else. Now, it's interesting. The baptism represents the idea of something happened to you earlier. But remember, what was the formula when we baptized people? When you were baptized, what were you baptized into? Were you baptized into the water? No. You were baptized, in Matthew 28, verse 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into what? Into the name. Into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You were in Adam, engrafted, engraved, and you were one with him. Your old nature breathed Adamic nature and sin. And now you were baptized out of that. And you died to sin and died to the nature. And he circumcised you of this flesh, removed the power. And he baptized you into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now that's your old identity in verse 13. What is your new identity? How do you view yourself now? Well, we must view ourselves as alive in Christ. Alive in Christ. Now, verse 13 says, But he made you alive together with him. He made you alive. You're considered dead. Now you're completely alive, not just a half-life. Not just partially alive, not just like kicking and screaming, but you are completely alive in Christ. There's no lack of life in you. Like before, you had no life at all. Now, there's no middle ground. Whether you were in Adam with his, associated with him, now you're completely alive with Christ and in Christ. Now, when people ask, and I alluded earlier, when people ask you, who are you in your relation to God, you might say Christian. But this is not how normally... Bible identifies you. I don't know if you know that. That word Christian is not a nice word in the Bible. It appears only three times. Twice of which is in a negative connotation. In Acts 11.26, we see this, that Barnabas left Tarsus to to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, 
they met with the church and, and thought considerable number. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This phrase was coined by the enemies of Christ who were kind of mockingly saying, oh, these are little Christs that follow in Christ with their weird idea of dead men come to life. And these are with these deceived believers, they follow in Christ. In another appearance in Acts 26, 28, the Agrippa, the king, he was replying to Paul's persuasion for him to be Christian. And he said, he refused. He said, in a short time, you will not persuade me to be one of these Christians, don't you? And the only one positive way, when Peter calls us Christians, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in his name. But the least to say that this is not how God identifies you in Scripture. It's not by Christian. And there's a reason for that. Because the most popular phrase by Paul, the most famous, the most common usage of how God views you is in this phrase, in Christ. Over 160 times, but by Paul alone, Paul calls you in Christ. Now, that would be weird, right? Someone comes to you along and says, well, who are you? And say, well, well, I, I am in Christ. Well, immediately, there would be a question like, what do you mean? I mean, that's kind of awkward. That's weird. What, what do you mean I'm in Christ? But that provides us the, the ability to, to think biblically about who we are in relation to Christ. Immediately, it brings the relational aspect. You are in Christ. You are belonging to Christ. You're somehow associated with Christ. It's not that just you're following Christ somewhere in the distance. It's not that just Christ died for you on the cross and now he's in heaven somewhere distantly. No, 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 no. You are in him. I am in him. I am in Christ. This is how Paul sees here. Look, in verse Verse 10, he says, and in him you have been made complete. Look, verse 11, and in him you were also circumcised also. Verse 12, and having been buried with him in baptism. And also you raised up with him. Verse 13, with him he made you alive. Verse 15, through him or with him he triumphed over the demons. These are the things that commonly use about us who we are. And if you open Ephesians chapter 1, you don't have to go there, but let me tell you, it always in him. You never viewed in somewhat disassociated relationship apart from God that you have to do something. It is all in him. Every spiritual blessings, in him. Election, in him. Redemption, in him. Our purpose, for life is in him. And our inheritance is in him. Our reception of the truth was in him. Our security from, comes from being grafted by the spirit in him. And our faith is in him. I mean, do you see, do you, do you associate yourself as a distant Christian following Christ with trying to do and please God? Or you associate so closely, intimately that you are with him. Now, the best illustration of this in him or in Christ comes from Jesus himself. And you could pop this illustration. Jesus is saying, this is probably one of the most accurate things to think about you are in Christ. John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me, abides in me. 
He who is in me abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. You see, you were this little twig that's trying to grow on a wild vine, but now you are grafted in. It's not that we think about in him as a sphere so much, like we are walking in him. We are, we are living in him. And that is true, absolutely true. But in him meaning that you are part of him. You were not before, but now you're part of life. Now you were infused and engraved and engrafted into Christ. And now you have life and abundance of life because it flows from him. Now you're stuck to Christ. We are united in him like the arm is united to head. Later on, he would say that, that we must be looking forward and standing hold, fasting, fast, verse 19, and not holding fast to the head. We have to think in relationship that we are grafted into Christ who is our head. We're united with him. United. But the kicker comes here. I mean, this is probably, you know, we, we kind of think through, yeah, we, we are united with him, we're part of him. What, what is interesting is that Christ accomplished salvation, and, and regularly we think about salvation in somewhat distant form still. Like, for instance, growing up and first time understanding the gospel, the big news for me was he did it for me. Like he did it instead of me. I mean, he, he died for me. He is my representative. He is the one who stands before God and pleads for me. He took my sin and instead of me went on a cross. He lived a righteous life instead of me and gave me his righteousness. But what Paul is here, saying here is not just that he did it for us, but that he did it with us. Now, let it sing just for, for a bit. This is how God view you. Look, verse 12, he said, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him. In verse 13, he said, this is how he made you alive. He made you alive together with him. With him. When Christ came out out of the tomb, you came out with him. And if he wants to double emphasis, he would put together with him. Usually if I say, well, come with me to the store. But if I would say, come to me with me together to the store, I'm just emphasizing that I'll be with you and we are touched to one another. And so when we came out from death to life, it happened that we were grafted in in Christ and we did it together with him. And it's everywhere. And a baptism with him. And you died with him. And you rose with him. He made together with Christ. God made you together with Christ, attached to Christ, with him. And so this is how God view us. In verse 1, chapter 220, he said, if you, if you have died with Christ, do you see those phrases? Do you see this, these prepositions, with Christ? 
in Christ, with Christ, that you were together with him. At every step of his salvation, he's not just did it for you, but somehow he did it with you. We are touched to Christ in an unimaginable way. And this is how God sees us. And this is how we should see ourselves as we are part of Christ at any given moment. Christ for us become everything. He has made, God made us alive together with Christ. And that makes total sense because and if you died with Christ, why would you sin now? And if you rose for a new life, why would you come and, and, and treat yourself as you're an old person. This is the center of Christian faith. And, and I would say that if you, if you cut Paul, you know, like they were saying about Bunyan, you cut him and there's, there's gospel would bleed through him. If you cut Paul at any part of his body, the union with Christ would bleed. He would tell you how he closely related to Christ. Now, this is not the emphasis of what you're doing. And, 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 and this is how, how you portrayed yourself to other people has nothing to do with this is what he did it for you and with you that's the that's the point paul probably the most vivid illustration of this union with christ speaks to galatians in chapter 2 verse 20 he said i've been crucified with christ i've been crucified with christ and it is no longer I who live. It is his life that lives in me. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. My identity is in Christ. In no way I will think about myself apart from him. And if you do that, you have power. Because you cannot be attached to Christ and die for sin and sin. You cannot be guilty when you died to sin. God has did, did his part. He said, I give you grace in Christ Jesus. Make sure that you stay in the grace. Don't move into imperatives before you're really soaked in in who you are in Christ. What is your identity, Christian? You are in Christ. Oh, that brings totally different implications on your life. Like I am in Christ, like together with him at every part and everything that belongs to him belongs to me now because I am part of him. That doesn't mean that you become God, but it means that you've been baptized into his name. The power of your Christian life comes exclusively from your identity in Christ. We are in Christ now, it says here that it brings, this, this new identity brings two, uh, three things, how you're going to think about yourself. Number one, we already talked about that you be thinking about yourself that you are alive and free from death. death. You're not going to die, even if you die physically. You, death has no bearing on you. Christians, they, they don't like death, but they not terrify of it because he has been nullified. The second thing that Paul says here, so how he freed us, he also take away the debt that we owe. Now, when you view yourself as a free from death, that you're going to resurrect and because you are alive with Christ, now you also might have to think about your sins. Okay, what are they 
you know, how they affect and influence in your life and you're thinking about yourself. But Christ said, now, in me you have free of debt. You, you don't own anyone, anything to God. Do you own anything to God? Well, if you're in Christ, he paid it all. I mean, we, we sing this, like, paid, he paid it all, everything. And somehow we are afraid to say this, that I don't owe anything for my sin because he paid it all. When the gospel comes in, it doesn't bring the obligations. It brings good news. And if you add to the good news any obligation, it ceases to be good news. Because now you have to do something. Christ removed sin by forgiveness, it says in verse 13. You are alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. All of us transgressions, our transgressions, we are removed now all past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. All of them removed from us. We're not guilty no more. I don't know if I read it before, but Martin Luther experienced the, the reality of this truth. When in one night he was dreaming that Satan came to him with a list of, of things that he did. And that list was, was written by Martin Luther himself and signed that he, he sinned here and here and here. And scroll after scroll, Satan, the accuser, was saying, did you do this? And he has to admit, yes, I did it. Did you do that? And take for a long time. And finally, when he was ready to leave, Luther said, yeah, but, but put it across that list. Paid with the blood of Jesus. We've been forgiven. We've been graced with. Now, how did God do that? Well, he removed that list. <laughs> list that was speaking against us. It was like, it says that he was, it was hostile toward us. He was in the way to God. That list of sins. Now, how does this list came about? Because we have the law of God. The Torah and Old Testament and the conscience written in our hearts as the Gentiles. It registers every sin that you do against you. It, it writes up. It is like if someone would install a chip into your car to register every violation that you do. You didn't do the full stop at the stoplight or you just uh, you know, cut the line here and so on. Uh, if you would have that, how long would you hold to your license? Probably not too long, right? And so we have this written documents. It says here that that it is the, the consistent, the debt consistent of decrees against us. This is a certificate of debt, handwritten document of, of our charges against us. This is not the law because the law is good and there's nothing to do with the law. God didn't nail the law to the cross. But the law produced another document of charges against us that was presented to us. And it spoke clearly that we were guilty. Now, what, that, what Christ did to this list? Well, he brought it up unto himself. So God nailed it to the cross. And in this word, it means that he canceled it out. He wiped it out. He just sponged it out. Some, if your child, 
you know, just spill the juice, the whole can of juice on your floor, you take the map and you wiped it out and it's clean. It, there's no more. It's disappeared, right? It's observed by the forgiveness of Christ. It's observed and it becomes non-existent for you. He nailed it to the cross, the certificate of debt consistent of your sin and guilt. What is the implication for a new identity? Is that you're not guilty no more. You're not guilty. I'm not guilty. You know, Sinclair Ferguson, he gives this illustration about Scottish law of execution. I really, really liked it. And it reads something like that, 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 uh, that a person who was uh, condemned to death, he should be executed at 8 a.m. Of, of so-and-so date. And it was saying about him when he was executed, it was pronounced that at that date, the so-and-so was justified. Was, he was justified. Why? He became free. Free of guilt. He paid for it. He, he, there's no bearings no more. Nothing this law, this church could do to him. He's free from it. He was justified. And in this sense, Christ died your and my death with this certificate, and he was justified. He fulfilled. And so you, if you are in with him and in him, you're justified. So anybody comes to you and say, You know, that happens in family. Spouse would remember what you did against her or him five years ago. If you believe in the gospel, you can't do that. You can't do that. You're completely free from guilt. Now you are a new identity. You're alive, free from death, free from debt. And that's how you live, as a free man, as a free man. And I know Arthur wrote this short poem, and every virtue we possess and every victory won and every thought of holiness are his alone. Now he moves to verse 15 after this explicit graphic illustration of you being freed from death free from any obligations and and charges of the law, you're also free from the dominion and the power of demons. Now, he says in verse 15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them. The main point here is that he made public display of them to everyone. Now, what does these demons what is these authorities has to do with the gospel? Why if he even if he brings up here? Well, because the devil brings the accusations. You know what's the power of devil? It's the accusations. Now, he's very powerful. He could kill you. He could bring the calamities. He could be, by allowance of God, do a lot of damage to this world. And, and who knows, maybe he has to do something with this COVID-19 epidemic and stuff. But that, that is not the scariest part. I mean, that, that is just what can men do to you? What can Satan do to you when you're in the hands of God? But what Satan is aiming at and demonic forces aiming at is to override God's authority and deceive you that you are not free and they have a grip on you. It is the same thing as if someone comes in and to say, what you're doing 
man, this is sin. You are a sinner. And bring charges against you. And all of a sudden, you're just like, yeah, I am. And you feel terrible. And you feel really confused. Instead of being liberated and triumphant in Christ. But that's the power. And the power against that is the cross. And this is what he's saying. The illustration here, how God disarmed them through Christ, is the illustration of Roman general after a huge victory over the army. He parades all the warriors right into the Rome capital. And he parades these warriors free or stripped from weapons. They are coming weaponless. And they are naked. They have nothing in them. They are shameful in their powerlessness. They are powerless. They can't do nothing. And and in two roads between them, they are peasants, and there are home state moms, and there are children, and there are slaves, and they are witnessing the shame that they are powerless to do anything. Yesterday, this warrior could kill. Today, it's completely powerless. That is the picture here, that when Satan comes and accuses, or he sends someone, one of his minions, to accuse you of your sin, to put you down, you would say, no. But they're naked. They have no weapon. There's no guilt. There's no sting. He can't kill me. He can't accuse me because I'm justified in Christ. Now, these authorities, these rulers, these are demonic forces. The demonic forces is behind every bad, false teaching. And almost every bad, false teaching is dealing with the gospel. That somehow you're not complete in Christ. Somehow you need to have another step. Now, that's dangerous. And that's why in, 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 in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, well, put on the full armor of God. Put on. Make sure that you're protected in the gospel against all of these rulers, powers, forces of this darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness because they're aiming at your freedom in Christ. The main phrase here is that he made them public display of them. He disarmed them. He stripped them. And every every time you preach gospel to yourself, you basically proclaim that they are naked. Now, they could kill you. They could send bad stuff, and they could stir up stuff in the world, granted. But what they can't do and are not allowed to do is to remove your faith in Christ Jesus and somehow separate you from him. And that is what Paul is aiming. Believers are caught in this trap of guilt. You know, a woman who performed a number of abortions when she was young, And she's suffering still with the guilt. Now, it's granted, it's horrible, it's bad. But in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. You are in him. You're not that old person who did those things. You are new. You're not identified by what you're doing, but what he did. 
Christ canceled all the charges by nailing these charges to the cross. He stripped the forces down of their weapons and their, and their accusations, and there's nothing. And this accuser will be thrown down from heaven who is accusing of the brethren down, uh, brethren denied before God. There's no more threats. Now imagine living in this reality that you are united so much in Christ that you are attached to him. When he was dying, you died with him. When he was buried in the tomb, you were buried there and you, you died to sin with him. And now you're alive, a life of righteousness with him. And now it's about you. It's about his life going through you. Now, when did this happen when he stripped them down? It happened when he died. The, the closest antecedent of this disarming rulers and authorities and being triumphant over them, it was happening following verse 14, that nailed it to the cross. So Christ on the cross was triumphant. And this is the point I want to kind of bring across, that the power of the gospel is in its in, in, in weakness. We're afraid of feeling vulnerable and weak in ourselves, but Christ wasn't. He took on the flesh of man. What is flesh? Weak? The, the flesh that has limited number of days? Uh, and, and he stripped himself of the right to use all the power and all the glory, and he relied on God in this flesh. And then he died... On the cross, naked, totally subdued by evil forces, and he died. And he won. And, and he won. So by this death, he stripped everyone and every other authority that is against him down. So it tells us that Christ, at his weaker point, at the weakest point, he produced something great that he overcome death with his death. It's, it's, it's like amazing. I can't even make the illustration. I was thinking about, you know, my, my, one of the favorite sports is soccer. And, and my, one of my favorite teams is Brazil. And I would imagine, like, if Brazil would come in and play with, you know, some amateurs, like maybe sixth graders, right? And, and sixth graders somehow would win, like with 21 to zero. And when we look at sixth graders, they're actually blindfolded. It's like, it, it, it is just in this Weakness, how in the world? Well, because he was attached to the Father. He won by the very shameful and weakest point of his life, death. Now imagine Christ is alive and you are in him and you are with him. What source of power is available to us? It's not in us, but it's in him. And nothing devil could do. And that's why Romans 8 speaks about this union with Christ and his love that nothing could separate us from the love of Christ. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created things will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We are there, grafted in, totally free from death, totally free from death. 
totally free from any dominion rather than Christ. We are triumphant in him. So what I want to communicate to you that by associate yourself, by considering yourself, not by doing, you will have assurance of, of your and, and power and, and progression, but by associating with Christ, by considering over and over again, Bible tells us, consider yourself, consider yourself. And this is vitally important. So if you find yourself being anxious, I want to encourage you that you are no longer dead, but you're alive in Christ, that you are no longer guilty, that you are completely justified in Christ, that you are no longer slave, that you are triumphant in Christ. Look, God attached us to Christ when he lived his holy life. Now, we are not just following his examples of holy life. We live his life. He is living through us. Can you experience this power? God attached us to Christ's body when he was dying on the cross. Consider yourself that you really was nailed to the cross with him because you were. And that you died. You died on the cross. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God attached you to Christ's dead body when he was buried him in the tomb? Do you believe that you walk out with Christ in his resurrection? Therefore, when we sing these songs, and I'll conclude with this, that we understand that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Don't ever think about yourself apart from Christ. That is the power to a holy life. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. A life in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ, my own. Father, we thank you for this union with Christ. Oh, help us to see ourselves as you see us. No longer slaves, attached to Christ, grafted in for a new life. Praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.